Welcome, everybody. Andrew Hopkins here, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to be hosting our guest today, uh, my friend Evan Thompson. We, we've been sending emails back and forth probably for six or seven months um, to arrange this, and he's been extremely generous to, to give some of his time and offer his tremendous um, expertise and scholarship on these topics. So I can't wait to dive into some really juicy material in uh, this upcoming session. But I, of course, want to introduce Evan, and I will do that in a more formal way, and then we're just going to let this thing run and see where it takes us. So Evan Thompson is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia, but he is also an associate member of the Department of Asian Studies and the Department of Psychology. He's the author of many books, including Waking, Dreaming, Being, Self and Consciousness and Neuroscience, Meditation and Philosophy, Mind in Life, Biology, <clears throat> Phenomenology, and the Sciences of Mind, and co-author of The Embodied Mind, Cognitive Science and the Human Experience. His latest book, and I really want to talk a little bit about this at the very end of our program, is uh, provocatively entitled, Why I Am Not a Buddhist, which is available from Yale Press in January. So, Evan, thank you so much, my dear friend, for taking the time to join us. What a delight. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I, I have to share with, with our audience, um, we met under the most interesting um, circumstances. Uh, you may recall it was at this utterly unique event um, that was hosted by Richie Davidson and this, his amazing center for the investigation of healthy minds. And the reason I'm going to say just a little bit about this is because the meeting was actually resonant with part of what we're doing in our nightclub charter, which, which I'll give you a brief review on. And for our listeners, what we did here was at the behest of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, he had asked Richie Davidson to partake in an extraordinarily difficult um, study both culturally and uh, scientifically um, in a, an effort to study what the Tibetans refer to as Tukdam, which is a kind of post-death meditative absorption. It's, it's wildly esoteric, um, and the collection uh, was really extraordinary. We had neuroscientists, we had philosophers, we had um, Tibetan medical doctors, um, meditators, mystics, and, and basically anybody we could pull in off the street. Um, it was an extraordinary event. And so I had the great good fortune of, of meeting you during that occasion. And uh, I don't know about you, but that stands out for me as truly one of the inimitable events of my recent uh, couple of years. <laughs> yeah, that was an amazing event. So I guess that was back in, like, I don't remember, 2010 or 2011, maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I wrote about it in the chapter on dying and death in my book, Waking, Dreaming, Being, and um, that that was an amazing event. Yeah, and and, and that, as you say, that's where we met. And I, I was back in, in the Madison um, about a year ago and had a chance to hang out with Richie. And actually, the anthropologist who is now on site, um, I'm not sure you're aware of this, um, Evan, in India, with all you know the gadgetry that they have out there, trying to collect this data that um, if and when it can be substantiated in kind of Western um, ways, really, you know, kind of the prescience of His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a paradigm buster. I mean, it really does expand um, the kind of myopic lens that the West has on what mind is and how it expresses itself and things like that. Um, 
But anyway, you know, maybe we can circle around that. That's that's such a fantastic topic. But I want to get back to a couple other things with you to at least launch this this conversation. And one is, first of all, my friend, I want to applaud you for the extraordinary contributions that you've made and, and certainly the influence you've been in my life. I think you're one of these rare beings um, who possesses a truly open mind and has the ability to tolerate um, open questions in uh, very much in the spirit of your mentor. Um, Francesco Varela, and you are you are uh, kind of a, an exemplar of the scholar practitioner. Um, you you walk the talk, or I should say, you sit the talk. Mm-hmm. And you 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 know your text. Um, I want to start by talking a little bit about it. Embodied mind is a lead into waking dreaming being. But waking dreaming being, if if there was a core text um, that I had to recommend for our audience. This would be it because this this mag- magnificent opus um, covers such an extraordinary array of topics, and is every page is just packed with insights. That for our listeners, I cannot recommend this book too highly. It is, um, and I can't tell you how many times I've read it and studied it, and every time I go through it, I discover more. And so, let me just tell you, I mean, very briefly, what we're doing with our nightclub adventure, and then I'll turn most of this over to you. But part of what we're doing is um, designing a kind of a an online um, international forum, you know, virtual university, virtual monastery, whatever you want to call it, where we can support the nocturnal adventures of Onironath, you know, those who are willing to um, explore the, the nocturnal mind, which to me is just subtle states of mind. That's what's revealed in the journey. And in the back of our nightclub, we have playfully what's referred to as night school, which is basically six kind of tracks or curricula where we create a container for this exploration. The first one is the science and medicine of sleep. Then there's the daily meditations, which include um, classic mindfulness, shamatha vipassana, and then the practice of religious reform. Um, And then we start this this kind of four-part track of the nocturnal practices themselves, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, sleep yoga, and then bardo yoga. And then in my schema, Evan, the way I kind of map these out is in a somewhat Hegelian approach where um, dream yoga transcends what includes lucid dreaming, uh, sleep yoga transcends what includes those two, and then bardo yoga transcends what includes all three. So as, as that is a, as some preparatory comments, I would love to start with a, a Brief summary, and I know it's difficult to summarize such a profound text, but the work that you co-authored with um, Francesco uh, Varela, you know, the really eminent um, neuroscientist and and really the kind of the father of neurophenomenology, and then Eleanor Roche, The Embodied Mind, this book has really been a landmark text in the cognitive science sciences. And if you could, um, Evan, as a kind of a prelude to where I want to take this conversation with you, is talk to us a little bit about the inactive view, what inactivism um, really represents, why is this such an original contribution, and in particular, um, as as I hope to unpack with you, how we can use these inactive tenets to understand um, the construction of this thing we call um, self. So is that a a reasonable place to start? Yeah, that sounds great. So... um... So let me just start by thanking you for the, you know, very generous words you said about about my writing that, you know, that that really means a lot. And it's, you know, it's great to get that kind of um, that kind of feedback and, and response. It, you know, it, it, it's very inspiring to, to, be, to hear something like that and to 
you know, take that and go on in, in new writing and new work. So, so thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Um, so with, with the book, the embodied mind, so that book, actually, we began writing that book in the mid 1980s, uh, 1986 is actually when we really first started writing, uh, Francisco Varela and I, and Francisco Varela was a, was a neuroscientist and a practicing Tibetan Buddhist, very, very pioneering scientist known for, for a lot of uh, original theoretical and experimental work in a number of different areas. And the basic, um, the basic reason we started writing that book is that cognitive science was, uh, you could say it was really, um, emerging and, and exploding in a way in the 1980s. And, by cognitive science, what we mean is the, the interdisciplinary examination of the mind and its relationship to the brain and the body using the tools of neuroscience and computer science and psychology and philosophy, linguistics. And one of the things that, that cognitive science was really making clear is that what we call the mind or the self um, isn't a thing. It's a collection of changing and interrelated processes and that's in a way a very profound insight but it wasn't it wasn't being connected back to what mind and self are for us experientially or or you could say uh phenomenologically in terms of you know how we live our experience and the various structures that our experience um takes for us and so we were concerned to kind to, to build a bridge between the the, the scientific perspective and the experiential perspective. And then the question was, well, how exactly to do that? And that's where Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist uh, meditation practice entered the story for us is that the, the, the Buddhist philosophical view of mind was always one that saw the mind as not a thing, but as a collection of interrelated processes. And so we wanted to take but that was grounded in a in an experiential perspective it wasn't it wasn't it was a theoretical perspective but it also had an experiential dimension so we wanted to we wanted to draw from the resources of that tradition in a way that could um feed into and enrich cognitive science and the way that that culminated for us in this idea of inaction was to kind of develop a, a line of argument drawing on both cognitive science and buddhist thought where instead of seeing the self as something fixed and the world as something fixed and the relationship between them being um, the self is representing an independent outside world, to see them as both interdependent and co-emergent, where meaning was, as we say, enacted or created through that interdependency. So the way I just stated it now is very abstract, but we tried to illustrate that through a whole bunch of concrete examples in um, how perception works, um, how action works. And we use the term inaction to mean, you could say, cognition as embodied sense-making rather than as the representation of an independent outside world by an independent inside mind. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, and oh my gosh, you're already hitting on so many topics that we could really um, start to riff on. One is this, you know, this idea of I mean, in a very real way, I think you could argue, and, and you do in Embodied Mind, when you bring in the tenets of, of dependent origination and the 12 Madonnas, this is another way to talk about um, 
independent origination slash emptiness kind of joining the, the best of the East and the West. And, and this somewhat unsettling notion about how fundamentally nothing is fixed. Uh, it's not just self or other. It's, it's any phenomenal display arises in this vast interconnected nexus of causes and conditions. And, and this, you know, as you were also pointing out, Evan, lest we think this is some like um, abstract philosophical parlor game, this has tremendous implications for how we live our lives and how we relate to ourselves and others. And, and also, you know, the kind of the double entendre of how it is that we literally make sense of reality that, and this is where I want to take this idea of an activism um, and, and kind of bolt this topic into the practicalities of our lives, um, this process of that you talk about quite extensively in Waking Dream and Being of I making, um, how it is that we go out in usually a completely unconscious, i.e. non-lucid way, and are constantly co-creating our um, entire war of reality, both self and other, in this kind of elegant dance, um, however unconscious it may be, that can either give rise to a great deal of suffering if, if it remains unconscious, because then we're just kind of prisoners of this process, or if we can bring these unconscious processes into the light of awareness, and this for me is how I use the word lucidity, I, I usually, not usually, when I play with lucid dreams, I'm more interested in lucid principle, um, the lucidity principle altogether, the awareness principle. So let's go a little bit further with this. Let's talk a little bit about how it is um, neurologically and then even, um, you know, in the resulting phenomenological expression, how it is that, that we literally go about making sense of our world um, and unaware that we're actually doing so. Yeah, so, well, that's a huge topic. Um, so the way that I come at that in Waking Dreaming Being is really through, as you say, um, thinking about how our sense of self is constructed. And I use the term eye-making for that. And that's, a, that's actually a more or less literal rendition of the uh, Sanskrit term ahamkara, which is used uh, throughout uh, different Indian philosophical systems, understood in different ways by those different systems, but generally refers to the, the, how the sense of I is uh, constituted or created um, or, or you, you might say dynamically put together. And in Waking Dreaming Being, what, what I'm specifically interested in is how our sense of having or being a self shifts across the whole sleep-wake cycle of, of consciousness. So, for example, so the, the framework I use to talk about this is to distinguish, and here again I'm drawing this from, from Indian philosophical traditions, is to distinguish between um, awareness the, the changing contents of awareness and then ways that um, various contents get identified with as I or me or mine and others as not me or not I or not mine. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of division or cut made within awareness with regard to contents that are identified with as self and those that are then, you could say, disidentified with as as not self. And what I'm interested in is how that, uh, I see that as a dynamic process. And so how that changes across, um, let's say, uh, waking perception, where when you're uh, very much engrossed in, say, uh, a kind of um, 
task that requires perception and movement and you know it might be driving or it might be playing tennis or it might be tapping at your computer you have this kind of an absorbed sense of selfhood that's very much grounded on the feeling of the body as self mm-hmm. but then if you uh if you start daydreaming or mind wandering then the contents that you're generating are mental contents that are you could say decoupled from that immediate perceptual context and that are drawing on images from memory, images that you project into the future, and they're purely mental images, but you identify with them as something that is you, both in terms of, you could say, what's presented in the image, so you might have an image of yourself in memory, but also the experience of of imaging as a mental process. It feels as if it's yours, but it's happening in this in this kind of mental arena that psychologists call mental time travel, where you project yourself into the past or forward into the future. And of course, meditators are very familiar with this. So if you're if you're sitting in meditation and maybe you're practicing a kind of you know mindfulness of breathing, well as we all know, you know, the mind generates its own kind of spontaneous contents. And many of them are images of things that you immediately feel affectively and cognitively identify as self, but they're within this uh, mentally created space that projects you into the past or projects you into the into the future. So that's sort of one dynamic of eye making in the just in the waking state, which is the difference between you might say sort of absorbed embodied activity with a very bodily grounded sense of self, and then a sense of self that's like the mental spinning. Of a of a of a tale or of a story, and then we can think about what happens as you start to feel drowsy and as you fall asleep, and that might happen in ordinary night sleep, or it might happen in, say, the context of sitting meditation. And there, uh, especially if we are thinking of trying to be as attentive to what happens as possible. So not just kind of crashing into sleep, but being very attentive to the way that the this transition from waking into sleeping is actually quite uh, extended and has a, a sort of fine-grained texture that we can examine that psychologists call the hypnagogic state, the state leading into sleep, where there we have the same kind of mental content generation process happening. Um, but there's a sense of absorption and a kind of dissolution of self-other boundaries that happens, what some psychologists call a kind of dissolving of, of ego boundaries. So that sense of eye-making then is in a way, you might say, um, it's shifting or it's coming apart so that it's not this very subject-object kind of structured experience. It's more of an absorbed, almost r- rolling uh, you might say spellbound or kind of fascination with with images, and then you know there's a there's a drop into sleep, which is uh, a kind of um, you might say a, a kind of blackout, as it were. And then in the dream state, um, if it's a vivid imagistic dream, that sense of the word dream, then that sense of self reemerges where. Again, there's a distinction between what's self and not self, but now within the context of the dream state. 
But the dream state is, of course, entirely a mentally generated content. And then in a lucid dream, you you become aware of that. And so the sense of self shifts again. So these are the th- th- this is what the term eye making for me really encompasses is is a way of tracking all of those changes in the sense of self and how they're very much being dynamically created through uh, mental activity across the the, the sleep wake cycle. Yeah, that's fantastic, Evan. And it's really exactly confluent with what um, my aspirations are with our little nightclub venture because really. You know, I there's a lot of kind of stealth help or code word going on with what we're doing. You know, darkness is a code word for ignorance of the unconscious mind. Lucidity is a code word for awareness. Dream, and this is what I'd like, like to talk to you a little bit about later because you talk um, and ask this question and attempt to answer it in your book. Um, you know, what is dream? Um, on one level, for me, dream is manifestation of mind. But what what I think is so um, Kind of resonant here is this is exactly the way I use these nocturnal practices as uh, you know excuse isn't the right word but as a medium to explore the construction and deconstruction of the self sense as it transitions through these different levels of um, integration and disintegration and and just to come back to something you said at the outset I believe this kind of self othering. Um, self and not self distinction. It's also something that Francisco um, was starting to explore towards the end of his life when he was working with kind of the deeper iterations of the, you could say, the immunology principle um, and how it is that, you know, what we know as biological immunology may have, um, you know, kind of philosophical applications. But what I want to talk to you a little bit here is to me, what it seems like, maybe this is one way to look at it, and I'll see, let me see if this lands with you, is one way I talk about. Ego is ego is exclusive identification with form. And one thing I'm hearing when you're speaking this way, Evan, is that in a certain sense, when we go from from the illusion of a fully constituted self um, here in the Freudian sense, you know, ego is first and foremost a body ego, and we fall asleep, where where you know ego is provisionally falling apart because this identification with with somatic physical form is falling apart. But the way I look at it now, especially in these kind of liminal dreaming states, which is a new term sometimes used for the hypnagogic space, it's almost as if um, f- uh, the sense of self is, is uh, being handed off from gross to subtle to very subtle form as is, is ego disintegrates from its exclusive identification with outer form. Then the baton, so to speak, is handed to to uh, you know imagistic or so-called mental content until that eventually dissolves. Um, and one loses consciousness altogether in the the, um, the non-experience of the, the dreamless state. And then, of course, the whole thing is kind of reconstituted as we come out from that and um, kind of reconfigure everything back together. But to me, would, would it be a fair thing to say, Evan, that the common denominator throughout this entire cascade is, in fact, um, either gross or subtle levels of identification with form? I mean, isn't that one way to talk about what you were just referring to? Yeah, no, I, I very much so. I think, um, I mean, you could use the word form. Uh, I tend to talk about it in terms of um, identifications with different kinds of contents, mental contents or contents of awareness. And those, I mean, but those contents have, you know, various kinds of forms. So they might be, um, you know, if we're thinking of, of, say, the hypnagogic state, they can be... Um, they can be visual images. They can be images in other sense modalities. They can be thought forms. Um, and of course, all of those kinds of contents and forms 
reappear in 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 the dream state. Uh, and then there's an interesting question about uh, sleep states that are that are dreamless, yeah. where you may have other kinds of subtle forms that in that don't really make up a dream in the sense of an immersive experience of of being in a in an immersive space that that has some sense of time and sense of place that would be the case for you know a, a sort of typical imagistic dream but that but there may be other you know subtler forms of of contents that are present and still um, there's there's I mean it's an interesting question to ask you know what exactly the sense of I uh, or subjectivity uh, is like for those, for those subtler forms, as you call them, or subtler contents. And so mm-hmm. actually part of what I talk about in Waking Dreaming Being is the, is the whole nature of, uh, of dreamless sleep or, or deep sleep, both from a physiological perspective and, and from an a experiential perspective, because the standard sort of line in, in neuroscience that we often hear is that, well, uh, dreamless sleep is a, is a blackout state. It's a state of absence of consciousness. And if you actually look at what the neuroscience evidence is and what people mean when they say that it's it's not it's not so straightforward at all it's it's uh the state of dreamless sleep is not one thing it, it, it there there are many sort of sub states and different different kinds of forms or contents and qualities and um it's not one thing in terms of what the brain is doing and if you wake people up from that state and you you know ask them to describe their experience you you get different kinds of reports depending on the questions you ask. So that's that's a complicated realm in and of itself. Whereas you say uh, the, the the forms are not are not gross uh, in the in the sense of kind of coarse. They're they're much subtler. Yeah, and, and really here, you know, it's interesting to me. What comes to mind is um, what Ramana Harshi once was famously and cryptically said that really when I take it to heart almost puts the the western um view of reality completely up on its head where he said that which does not exist in deep dreamless sleep is not real um and so you know the implication there is that well what what really does exist quote unquote is one could argue formless awareness and and in that sense that is and, and as you mentioned in your book especially as a representative of the um hindu and buddhist traditions I mean, that state is referred to sometimes actually as the causal state. I mean, it is from that formlessness um, out of which everything then arises. And then what happens in the West, um, at least from my lens, Evan, is this kind of um, wake centricity, this kind of ontological supremacy that we attribute to the waking state, because that's fundamentally the state that we have uh, the most control over, at least allegedly. And that when that um, control falls apart as we fall asleep, we tend to dismiss these more subtle states simply because we're not lucid to them. And so the reason I'm saying this is that part of the chart of these nocturnal meditations is that if, in fact, we can maintain lucidity, paren, awareness as we drop into these deep states, we, we realize this kind of um, ultimate democracy of, of the mind, what the Buddhist tradition refers to as one taste or the great equanimity, kind of the equanimous nature of consciousness um, through all these different states. And that's what I find um, just fantastically interesting is, is to, to see how it is that we come online um, in the morning, literally go offline in the morning, uh, or I should say at night, and then how each one of these um, experiences that we have uh, access to every single night 
can bring a greater sense of awareness and appreciation. And as you say in your book, this is what's so beautiful, um, gives us the opportunity to really be more fully human. I mean, on, a, on one level, if we only attribute reality to one-third of what's available to us, uh, temporarily, not ca- uh, categorically, not temporarily, in other words, the waking state, we're leaving out two-thirds of reality. Um, and so I think this fullness that you're alluding to could, you know, could really be explored using the medium of these nocturnal practices and obviously the really subtle daytime meditations that, that support them. So um, I just wanted to toss that into the mix. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I'm very sympathetic with that. Um, of, of course, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, William James in uh, his, his uh, lectures on the varieties of religious experience in his chapter on mysticism, you know, he has this wonderful statement that the, the ordinary waking state is is just this very limited um, uh, kind of uh, slice of a much much wider spectrum of consciousness, and that it's the he says something like it's the filmiest of of yeah. screens that separates the waking state from all of these from all of these other states, and and all of these other states include the ones that we cycle through on a daily basis as we fall asleep and as we dream or as we, you know, practice or spontaneously have lucid dreams, um, as we, as we descend, you know, into, you know, the depths of sleep and then as we reemerge into, into awakening. So, uh, I think that that's, uh, that's exactly right. I think there's an interesting difference in perspective. I mean, as you say, um, there's a, there's a kind of, uh, orientation that we're culturally very familiar with that, that, that privileges the waking state. Whereas when Ramana Maharshi speaks in that way that you quoted, you know, that's very much reflecting, uh, well, in his case, really, uh, I would say probably a kind of, uh, yoga Vedanta perspective where what happens in deep sleep is you return to a kind of ground state of consciousness that, that is, as you say, causal in the sense that that's, um, that's kind of the, uh, the, 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 the fundamental, uh, level, like, like a zero energy state in physics. And then the waking state and the dreaming state are sort of excited states out of that, out of that low energy state, which is, which is what's present in deep sleep. And, and so a tradition like Vedanta and yoga, um, you could say, uh, prioritize that, that state because it's it's what you descend through in order to uh, experience you could say the you know the fullness of of being or or brahman if we're talking about it in a in a uh, you know a, a vedanta or yoga or yoga discourse and of course there are uh, you know some some versions of buddhism are are not so sympathetic to that idea but then other you know other developments of buddhism are are much much closer to that uh, so that's an interesting cultural difference. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, and um, also Matthew Walker, I don't know if you read his um, um, quite compelling book, Why We Sleep. Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.